The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Okay, you know, I really respect you guys because it's not everybody who wants to study hard Old Testament passages late on Sunday evening. So, I got a lot of props for y'all. So, thanks for coming, thanks for being here. We are going to start Malachi tonight, and we're just going to do verses 1 to 5. But man, this guy packs a punch pretty much with everything he says. Uh, Just to give you a survey, later on he's going to say that the priest should have poops smeared on their faces. So, he likes to tell it how it is. But the... I think these first five verses are the biggest punch, and I hope they will land. As we get there, I want to ask you this question. Do you really know and feel that God loves you? And how far back does this love go? How unique is this love for you? Does he have just a, does he have a vague love that's the same for everybody in all places? In other words, uh, did God love Hitler as much as he loves you? And if he does, what's that love worth? How much does, God, does God love everybody in the same way? Uh, does Jesus have a bride? Does he have a wife? Does he love every woman the same way? Am I supposed to love every woman the same way? Or do I have a unique love? For one woman, is different. How much does God love you? You know, sometimes, um, especially, you know, if you're church or you're religious at all, heck, you don't even need to be church or religious to say God is loving, and nearly everybody tends to believe that. Of course he is, God is love, but a lot of times we want to define that love in kind of uh, our own way. I don't know, how do, you, how do you think the world thinks of God's love? Sometimes he's like grandpa in the sky, He's like the heavenly Bernie Sanders. Give free things to everyone. Uh, what is his love like? What does it want? Um, you know, when you're loved by someone, their love is in a way unique to who they are, isn't it? Like to be loved by someone with a name and who they are, their past, their present, their future, that's a unique kind of love. Isn't, isn't God personal? What is he like and what is it like to be loved by him? He loves you. He loves you. Um, another thing to add to this is, is sometimes we feel apathetic to God's love, don't we? Can you remember times in your life where you knew he loved you and you just didn't care? You weren't moved by it? You weren't affected by it? Didn't change anything? Uh, sometimes we know God loves us, but everything else seems more powerful, more important, more emotional. How can we... How can we get a sense of God's love that's honest from who, he, from who he is, from how he feels about us as his people uniquely in a way that hits us in the heart? That's what we're going to get at in these five verses. It's a, it's a punch. It packs a punch of God's love. So we're starting the book of Malachi, and really I think it's a book about delight um, from the opposite side. It's a book confronting people for not delighting in what they should delight in. 
You should be happy about something and you're not. You're taking something for granted. Um, Malachi, his name means messenger. We know all, almost nothing about this guy. Malachi, messenger, that's all he says. He doesn't tell you his, his name, his background. He's, he's pretty much saying the only thing you need to know about me is I'm speaking for God. That's it. And God has sent him to speak to Israel, and Israel needs it. You know, we had the fun of going through Daniel, and this book is set about 150 years after Daniel. So this is back when Israel's back in the promised land, okay? And they're stuck in a rut. They have somewhat of a temple. They have priests. They have things working again, but the people don't really care. They're just going through the motions, and in the end, they're apathetic. And so this book is meant to wake them up. By God's grace, it'll... It'll wake us up. So look at these. Uh, look at these first two verses. Actually, I'll just read uh, verses one to one to five. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, verse two. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, "How have you loved us?" Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear down. They'll be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this and you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Wow. Uh, what's the first thing God says to his people? Verse two. I love you. I have loved you. And what do his people say in return? How? Oh, what do you hear in that? How? I don't see it, God. I don't feel it. It's not worth much to me. I don't really believe in it. How have you loved us? I don't even know. Now put yourself in a good uh, Israelite shoes. God says, I've loved you. Can you give me examples of how God has loved these people through their history? Anyone? Okay, right, the Exodus. He stole them out of slavery and made them his people. What else did he do? Gave them a land. Gave them a tabernacle, the temple. What's that about? He's there. You can have me. I'm here with you. Gave him his law. Showed them what's right, what's wrong, what's true. Gave them victory over their enemies. There's got to be more. What else? King. Yeah, gave them kings, um, their own land, their own, their own freedom. And how about the fact that they still exist? <laughs> he brought them back out of Babylon. He didn't just say enough of you. They still, they're still there. But what do they say? How you, I, don't, where, I don't see it, God. How have you loved me? Do you ever feel that way? I love you, God says. Does your heart ever say, how? I don't feel your love. Hmm. Mine does sometimes, by the way. I'm not condemning you. <laughs> the, the, really, the New Testament teaches us that the benefit of having Israel to read about is Israel shows you your heart. Find your heart in Israel. That's... That's who we are. That's why we need Jesus. They say, really? 
All right, and now God is going to say, right? So, so what, what was the first statement? I love you. What's their question? How? What's his response? It's at least, well, I'm going to show you how, right? Isn't that the question of this passage? I'm going to show you how I love you. It's not going to be what any of us expect. It's not going to be what any of us in modern Southern California culture believe about God and his love. It's totally going to be a punch in the nose about God's love. It's going to humble you. It's going to shock you. But man, you're going to see love like you've never seen it before. You're going to see how undeserved it is like you've never seen it before. So here's God's example of love. I have loved you, says the Lord. You say, how have you loved us? God's next line is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau, I hated. The rest is just details on that. This is the point. This is how you know I love you. Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) This doesn't help me feel God's love. Well, we got to understand the terms. Let's back up. We're talking about two nations. What are the two nations? Israel and Edom, okay? Israel, God's people. Edom is a pagan nation to the north. How many of you have heard of Edom before? All right. You've been doing your devotions in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, especially Obadiah. Each one of the prophets, they got stuff to say about Edom. During, uh, before and after the exile, Edom was very cruel to Israel. They celebrated Israel's failure Uh, They were like terrorists to Israel, so they're enemies to Israel. Um, So God has words of judgment for Edom in each of these books. So we've we've got one level, these two nations, Israel and Edom, but let's back it up. Where do these nations come from? What's that? Brothers. Who are the brothers? Jacob and Esau. Whoa. So as you read through the Old Testament, um, you know, we're very individualistic as modern Americans. The Old Testament is way more uh, community-oriented. And the idea that you receive a lot of influence from those who've gone before you, and you influence those who come after you quite a bit. Chances are you're going to be a lot like your parents. True or false? True, okay. Now, does God break in? He does. He breaks in. So there, there can be massive change, but if gravity, the normal course of events, take their place, uh, you're going to be like your parents. You, you think of it like a, we have a, a teen mom ministry at this church. Some of these girls are way too young to have babies, 14 or something. Guess when their mom had them? Some of these girls, it goes back generation after generation. It's been like 50 years since anybody had a dad in this thing. So what do you learn? And so it continues, right? Now, can God break in? Yeah, but we're a lot like our forefathers, and we influence those who come next. I'm sorry, Jackson. (laughs) So we're looking back to Jacob and Esau, and who are they? Why are they important? Who's their daddy? Granddaddy, Isaac, right? Why is Isaac important? Well, Abraham. Why is Abraham important? I mean, Abraham's the key to like the whole Old Testament, right? What did God say to Abraham? 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a nation. And in you, everybody gets blessed. And now Andrew's wishing we could sing Father Abraham. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Veronica's laughing because we were just in Haiti, and our security guard, who's this huge buff police officer packing a 9 millimeter, wanted to sing and dance to Father Abraham in Creole. That's where we were. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> okay, but moving on. Um, Abraham, he's in, in, in him, God's going to save the, save the world, right? And so this is the God's covenant promise. So when Abraham dies, who carries on the covenant? Isaac, okay, the, the child of promise. You'll notice, was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, we had, Ish, remember the affair with the hot Egyptian slave? To do things our way, to do things in the flesh. Uh, and God blessed Ishmael, but the covenant didn't go through Ishmael went through Isaac, because God wanted to be known that it's a supernatural covenant, right? Abraham, your wife, is too old to have a baby, and that's exactly why I'm doing it this way, because my covenant, I save my people, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. So then Isaac, um, he has a kid, or his wife gets pregnant. So you want to flip around, or you just want me to read it to you? Let's be Bible study. Let's flip. Okay. So keep a finger in Malachi. Actually, you... Yeah, keep your finger in Malachi and go back to Genesis 25. First person there, tell me a page number. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis 19. Page 19, chapter 25. <laughs> Keeping us awake. Chapter 25, look at verse 21. Everybody there? Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, was conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is it happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be what? Divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. So, sweet and beautiful in the beginning. Isaac prays for his wife. She can't have kids. He prays for her. She has kids, twins. And then some crazy stuff's happening in her womb, evidently. She's like, God, what's up? And then God says, something massive is happening right here. Two nations are in your womb. Oh, now we're in Malachi. Who are the two nations? Israel. Edom. And here's what's shocking. The older will serve the younger. Um, ancient Near East, the firstborn inherits everything and then is responsible for everybody else. The firstborn inherits. The firstborn inherits the covenant. The firstborn inherits everything and is responsible for everyone else. But what did God just say? Not this time. The younger is going to inherit. Who chose who would inherit? God. Why did God choose what he chose? Kinda. Because he's God. Keep that in your pocket. The covenant's going to go through Jacob. God chose the younger. God decides who receives the covenant. And as you read through the rest of these stories... What do you learn about Jacob and Esau? 
Which one of them is a wonderful hero for you to emulate? Yeah, let's go with not really any of them. Jacob has great faith towards the end of his life. That's exemplary. The man in the beginning, he's gross. Um, He's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a thief, conniver. Um, Pretended to be his brother to steal the birthright. Yep. How about Esau? How is he? He's hairy. (laughs) He's hairy and his name is Red because he's red-haired, which means he was beautiful, right? I'm paying attention. Genesis 25. We're still there, right? Verse 34. Something to pay attention to. Remember Jacob or Esau comes in. He's like, man, I'm starving. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I got to eat now. Come on. Jacob's like, well, give me your birthright. So what did he ask? What did Jacob ask for? I want to inherit. For a cup of soup. For Wendy's chili. Look at verse 34. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose as went his way. Next line's really important. Thus Esau, what? Despised his birthright. He could have, by, by expectation, inherited everything and also been the one through whom the covenant through which God is going to save the world goes through. He said, I'd rather have some soup. How much does he love God? How much does he care? Not at all. So which is it? Did God choose or is Esau responsible? Yes. Yes. Which one's a sinner, Jacob or Esau? Which one deserves judgment, Jacob or Esau? Yeah. What's the difference ultimately between Jacob and Esau? Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. Hebrews 12, you don't have to turn there. Hebrews 12, 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Um, And then two nations come out of these guys. Uh, Jacob gets changed, right? Do you remember what his name gets changed into? You know, even if you don't. Israel, right? And it means one who struggles with God, one who wrestles. But God didn't give up on him. Remember, there's that story. Um, when, when Jacob is heading out to save his life, he goes to this place, Luz or some nowhere place, and he has this vision from God, and he's like, God, if you bless me, I'll give 10%. I always laugh at that. Why is that funny? God, if you bless me, I'll give you 10%. God, give me everything. I'll give you a little bit back of what you give me. <laughs> he's, de- he's cutting deals with God at that point. He's cutting deals. By the time he wrestles with the angel at the end, he's like, I just need you. He's broken. He's changed. And his name becomes Israel. God's people who were sinners, but broken, changed, repented. That's the people of God. That's what they're supposed to be. Edom, who are they? Hairy idolaters. (laughs) Really hairy idolaters. Back in Malachi, what's the question? I've loved you. How have you loved me? 
Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. And then all the stuff, Edom they could build, they could try, they can work. I'm going to cream them. But Israel, I'm going to show you grace. The evidence of God's love for Israel, his covenant people, is that he chose to love them even though they didn't deserve it. And the only difference between them and the others is God's grace. Again, what's the difference between Israel and Edom? Which one was good? Which one deserved judgment? Both. Why did Israel get grace? Because God wanted to give it. This passage in Malachi is quoted in Romans 9. So this is the Old Testament version of Romans 9. So turn to Romans 9 now. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to walk you through a lot of this chapter for it to make sense. Thank you. 945. Chapter 9, Romans 9, 945. Little background. Who's writing Romans? Paul. And what's Paul's ethnicity? Ethnicity. Jewish. What was his job before conversion? Pharisee. Job after conversion, made a tent to support himself. Pharisee. Okay. Does he care about the law? Does he care about Israel? Is he knowledgeable about it? He cares quite a bit. What happens a lot of times when Paul goes to the synagogue or temple to preach about Jesus? They try to murder him <laughs> over and over and over again. Try to murder him. Romans 9. This is a gut punch of God's love. Romans 9. First, look at verses 1 to 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So, okay, how does Paul feel at this point in the book? Heartbroken, okay? So as we read this, as we adapt these ideas, we can't do it with pride. This is, if the apostle's heartbroken, we probably can and should be as well. But he's heartbroken, Why is he heartbroken? Verse 3. I could wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I could wish that I'd be cut off and they'd believe I could never work. But why is he sad? His brothers, ethnic brothers and sisters who are Jews, he preaches to them they don't believe. How does he feel about their lack of faith in Christ? It's killing him, right? It's killing him. Cares about him. So in his mind right now is the question, why? Why won't they believe in their Messiah? He fulfills all their promises. I mean, it's just, why won't they believe? That's the question on his mind. Is it because God's word has failed? He promised to save, but then he couldn't? Think, listen to that question. Is it because God tried to save but couldn't? And, and here's, here's the hard question for us tonight. How come, the, how come everybody who hears about Jesus doesn't believe? Is, Jesus, is God trying to save every single person but like just a terrible failure? 
That's the question in this passage. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. No, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, so does Paul think God is failing? Nope. Next line, really important. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What's that mean? First category, not all who are descended from Israel. So define that first category. Ethnicity. So there's a physical Israel, and then the second use of the word is the spiritual Israel, those who really know him, those who really love him. So not every ethnic Jew is a spiritual Jew, basically is the way Paul's talking. Verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, but, and then he quotes Genesis, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, who is a child of Abraham, Ishmael or Isaac? Both physically. Who received the covenant, Ishmael or Isaac? Why? Because God chose him. Verse 8. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About next year at this time I'll return, Sarah will have a son. And then here's Malachi, verse 10. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Do you hear that? If we're looking at Ishmael and Isaac, we could say, well... It's kind of dirty pool, how Abraham and Hagar and all that. Maybe that's why God didn't choose Ishmael, right? So with, with Jacob and Esau, what's the difference between Jacob and Esau? Same daddy, different daddy. Same mama, different mama. Same everything, <laughs> okay? They shared a womb. And the word of God came before they lived a day of their lives. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad. The next line is everything. Will you read it with me? It starts with in order. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Okay? What was his Why? Why did he choose Jacob? In order that God's purpose, or his goal really, of election might continue. So what, what's one of God's goals here? How do you become one of his people? He chooses you. Why? Look at that next phrase. Not, not what? Not because of works, but because of what? But because of him. Because of him who calls. Don't you think you're a Christian because you were spiritually smarter than the other people? You know, aren't you spiritually better? You chose to believe and they didn't. So you must have had like, you're like Darth Vader. There's still a little bit of good in you. Is, is that why? If you can, then you can boast about it, right? 
Why am I a believer and person, person X here isn't? There's plenty of people who grew up in the church, heard the gospel, don't want it. And then there's, there's those of you who heard it and you wanted it. Are you better? Are you smarter? Are you more honorable? Are you more dignified? Did you deserve it? You say, well, I chose. You didn't. Can you boast in that? This text is saying God's purpose of election shows you it has nothing to do with anything you could perform. Nothing. It's about him who calls. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. The point is, when God looks out on the world, what does he see? Does he see anybody who deserves to be his child? No. Now, does he have a providential love for all that he's made? Does he care for the earth? Is he compassionate? Yeah, I have a book on my shelf called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, because it just, you work through the biblical doctrine of the love of God, and some of it's difficult. Um, and this is part of what's difficult. But the point here is if, if you're loved with a covenant love, if, you're in his, if you belong to his people, the reason ultimately, the first reason is why. He chose you. He chose you. In verse 14, I used to hate this passage, I'll be honest with you. I grew up hating this passage. But it broke me in the end. Because I know some of you are, if you're anything like me, Paul anticipates your question. Wait, that's not fair, right? It's not fair. And guess what? Fair has nothing to do with grace. How do you define grace? Love you deserve? That's just it. That's just it. It's not deserved. So if it's not deserved... It's not fair. Now, is it just? See, that's different. Is it just? So, does God have the right to look out on a sinful world of people who've rebelled against him? Would he have the right to judge all of us, send us all to judgment? Yeah, I mean, I could not argue with God if he wanted to, to judge me for all my sins. What would I say? Other than, hey, you... You made a promise about the gospel and all that. But in and of myself, right, what could I say? So if we want fairness, we all get judgment. But does God have the right as the judge of the earth to show grace? Is he allowed to do that? He is. And that's what we have here in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. That's used a lot in Romans. Meganoita in Greek. It's almost like without cussing, because I don't think Paul would cuss in the Bible. That would be bad. But it's almost like saying, hell no. I mean, it's just really strong. Is there injustice on God's part? No way. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, we don't need to flip here, but this is Exodus 34. Exodus 34, Moses on the mountain. Moses says, show me your glory. And God's like, all right, I'll let you see some. Which, I mean, how, how rad would that be? He has to like cover him up in the rock so he doesn't fry. I'll show you a little bit. As I pass by, you can see a little 
little sparkle at the end. Oh, okay, let's go. And then as God says, all right, I'm going to show you my glory, then he tells him his name. And this is what he says to Moses right there. This is, this is God's character. This is God's heart. Verse 15, I will what? I will have mercy on whom? How does God know which ones to have mercy on? Is it the ones who deserve it? Who does he have mercy on? The ones he wants to have mercy on. I'll have compassion on the one I want to have compassion on. Verse 16, humbles the whole earth right here. So it depends not. What does it not depend on? Who gets in God's people? It depends not on number one, human will or exertion. It doesn't depend on the human heart or what the humans do, but on what? It depends on God. It depends on God. So what is God saying to Israel and Malachi? I've loved you. No, you haven't. Yeah, I have. Because I've chosen to show you undeserved grace. Whereas I've let people you're just like, they're going to receive the judgment they deserve. I've chosen to show you grace when other people who you're just like are going to get the judgment they deserve. Do you see his answer? I chose you. Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Page 976, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul's praising God for what? Blessings. First blessing. Ultimate blessing, verse 4. Even as he, what? Chose us. In him, who's the him? Jesus. When? Let this blow your mind. When? Before the foundation of the world. Now just think uh, biologically for a moment. What are the chances you're here? the right time, let's be frank, at the right time, there was like a million sperm, right, or something, how many, I don't know, and that one egg, and how many days of uh, potential did that one egg have? I don't know, a couple, right, I don't want to think about this anymore. But it wasn't long. What are the chances that you are you? Just from that one moment. And then back that up, right? Your, your parents had to meet at the right time. Had to be the blah, blah, blah. Grandparents, blah, 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 blah. You should not exist. You should not exist. And Ephesians is telling you, before God made the world... 
Before he made the world, he knew darn well you were going to exist because he was going to make sure you were going to exist. So think about that. There was injustice that happened on the way to you existing. There were bad things that happened on the way to you existing, evil things that were part of the story for why you existed. And God used it to make sure you exist because he what? He chose you. He chose you, and he chose you in Christ. I want, and I can say each one of your names, I want you to be connected to Christ. Before he made the world, verse 5, in love, in what? In love, he predestined us for adoption. Love. Predestined. I don't, what's language? What, what is pre? Destined mean beforehand determined. He predestined you for what? Adoption. I want you as my daughter. I want you as my son. And he did it before he made the world. How could you possibly earn any of that? What did you do to prove yourself to God cabillions of years before you were born? Nothing. Nothing. So yeah, if you're a Christian, you chose Jesus. There is no question. I believe that. But you chose Jesus because a long time ago, God chose you. And that is naked grace. That is straight up a shot of grace. Do you see why it's a shot of grace? It's spicy going down. Because I can't earn it. And there's a lot of people just like me who aren't going to get it. And God is sovereign over it. And really, if your heart's honest, you'll say, why did you choose me? Why did you choose me? The answer is in Ephesians 1, I think it's verse 5. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. Street language that means because he wanted to. (laughs) Reformed people like me, that's a way of describing a certain angle on theology. Uh, One thing we believe in is called unconditional election. What does election mean? Choose, elect a president, choose. Uh, what's, what's condition? What's the reason you choose something? And there's always a condition for the choice. So what the doctrine is saying is that when God chose me, when he chose you, the condition was not in me, and the condition was not in you. So he didn't look out in the world and go, oh, heaven will stink if Matt's not there, because he's different than all the rest. This is not what he did. I'm a sinner. I deserve his wrath, right? So he didn't, the condition wasn't in me. Where was the condition? I'll have mercy on those whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on those who I'll have compassion. The condition is in him, and that is grace. There's a view of Christianity, and I have dear friends who believe this way, and they're still my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them. If you're not convinced by what I'm saying, I still love you. I'm glad you're here. It's okay. 
But there's a view on Christianity that, that, that looks at God's love in a real vague way, like this. God loves everybody in the world in the same way at all the time. And he makes an offer of salvation, so he makes salvation possible. Jesus did something, but now it's up to you. And you may or may not come and get it. So really, that idea is not, Jesus didn't save you on the cross. He made your salvation possible, theoretically possible, based on what you may or may not do. So when Jesus said, it is finished, in that view, he said, it's now possible, (laughs) okay? And so you can come and get it or not, or you could lose it or not, but it's on you. And he loves, if, if you're in Christ, his love for you is no different than Hitler. Everybody the same way all the way. I don't know about you, if, but if love isn't personal and action-taking in a special way, I don't know what kind of... Do you feel loved by God if you know that he loved Hitler just as much as he loves you? What's Hitler doing right now? So, so, something awful. Something with wrath. And it's God going, man, I tried to say everybody, I just couldn't do it. Is that the way Jesus talks? Read, read John 6, read John 10 on your own time. Does Jesus talk like, I tried to save every single person, but I just, I messed it up. I'm sorry, Father. Or does he say things like, I know my sheep. I lay my life down for the sheep. I will raise them up on the last day. In Jesus' mind, Jesus bats a thousand. When he says it is finished, guess what? It was finished. He saved you on the cross. He was dying for you because the Father chose you. And that's what bought your faith, enabled your faith, and made you alive. I've loved you, Israel. How have you loved us? Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. What that means is, you're getting grace you don't deserve. I've chosen to give you grace you don't deserve, while those who are just like you are going to receive the punishment they do deserve. It's grace. It's a shot of grace. It's like grace whiskey. And it burns all the way down. But when you really taste it, doesn't it give you a little buzz? Maybe that's a bad illustration. I like it. I'm going with it. I'm going with it. Because, listen, like, your heart still struggles with this. I'm going to try to get God to love me, right? And then if I don't do it right, I didn't do devotions right, I didn't feel it right, I didn't say it right, or whatever, I didn't do something right, so his love for me went down. Oh, but now I did it right this time. I was more holy, or I accomplished something, or whatever. Now his love for me went up. You know, the doctrine of election shows you you have no idea how loved you are and how much you can't ever, never did deserve it. You have been an object of grace from eternity. You're so loved. And so if your love isn't depending on your works, that means it's truly unconditional. How safe are you in the love of God if it's true that he chose you? Man, you're loved. I've loved you. How? I chose you by grace. You don't deserve it. I love you anyway. Now, how is God just to do that? Well, the answer is the cross, right? Romans 3, we're not going to go there right now. But God shows his righteousness in this, 
Um, Jesus paid it all on the cross. And so how is God right to choose me and you when we're sinners to bring us into his family, when we deserve his wrath? Well, there's a substitute, right? And he took it in our place. And so God is both just, Paul says, and the justifier of the ungodly. So he's just in the sense that he never sweeps a sin under the rug and says, oh, just forget about it. He's never once done that, he never will. Every sin gets paid for. There's two options, right? You pay for it or Jesus pays for it. For those who've been trusted, we put our faith in Christ. Jesus paid for all our sins. So God is just to receive us because the substitute paid for it. And that's how he's righteous in choosing to save the ungodly like me and like you. Do you see it? Wow. Let's pray. Give you a minute or two just to soak it in. This makes God's love so personal, you guys. He doesn't just love a, he doesn't just love a vague crowd out there. If you trust Jesus, you know it's because he chose you. You're loved. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we, uh, we bow before you and we just confess. Man, I got, I got nothing, God, to deserve anything from you. Nothing at all. You know my sin. You know my mind, my motives, my mouth. I got nothing to make any demands on you. And the fact that you would choose me. And we can know we are chosen. We can know you've chosen us because we trust Christ. We can know that. In Thessalonians, it says, we know, brothers, that you're chosen by God because of your faith in the gospel. So I pray that every person here who, uh, who trusts Jesus, they would just have an amazing sense that you chose them and you love them. That would wash over them and comfort them and, and give them joy. Uh, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they put their trust in you, Lord Jesus, uh, and find that true for them as well. God, as we pray, as we sing a couple more songs, just minister to us, uh, reveal your love to us. Thank you for speaking this word to us. In Jesus' name.